And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 234, a.k.a. season 3, episode 54, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with... MC. Ken Schoolin. Oh my God, Ken Schoolin. Uh, joining us yet again. Uh, he was a special guest on here like years ago, it feels like, um, but we welcome him back. He wanted to come on and, and talk about some things, so there he is. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't have phone numbers for you because you can still call into this show, uh, 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. That's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. Uh, so good to have you, Ken. Uh, MC, as always, a pleasure. So what's going on with you guys this week? Well, um, I have uh, a new interest on, on the internet. Um, her name is Soph. Uh, she was banned from YouTube and probably Twitter, too. Um, I think I, I showed the, the clip of Soph to, to Ken last night. Um, is that the one you sent me uh, yesterday? Yeah. Oh, so my it's God. Hilarious. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Okay. The reason why... Uh, I shared it is because I was I was interested in uh, debunking a lot of the stuff that Greta Thunberg uh, is is proclaiming to the UN and and everything. She's she's appealing to authority to solve all of our climate crisis issues, and uh, I I don't believe in the crisis for one, and the other I don't believe in appealing to authority uh, to to fix these type of things i think they they stand in the way and that's the exact same thing that soph would say so yes it's um, it's a multi-level problem i want to say this real quick about the clip that you sent me i didn't even think i was going to be able to watch it uh, right. because by the time i saw it the little the little blurb at the bottom the little highlight part says your page has been unpublished for violating community standards and i went oh i already missed this you know, <laughs> because they were already putting the, uh, was, but then the video played and it was like, no problem. And so, so that's the name of the group that, that your, your video or your, your page has been whatever you said. Oh, okay. That, that's the actual name of their pay, web page or their, that's page. even more hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they repost stuff that is not allowed, uh, to be heard by, you know, the plebes or whatever. That... <laughs> How do they get away with that? Uh, it's impressive. Well, okay, so this this video is a new one, and actually, the only way you can get it is by uh, giving money to Soph. So um, she's on a few other uh, websites. One of them is BitChute, and the other one is uh, I think FreeSpeech.tv. And so I donated money to FreeSpeech.tv so I could hear it. But somebody else uploaded that to Facebook, so I don't know nice. who did that. Um, but yeah, I, if, if they didn't put that on, on Facebook, I probably wouldn't have seen it, but it's also good because now I know some, some other, you know, video websites that are out there. So you got to tell me a little bit more because the, the way that Soph is dressed, I thought it was a character. Um, I think it is. Okay. And like just so someone sometimes, portraying. Sometimes she, well, one time she dressed up in full Muslim gear. So just black okay. sheet and, you know, covering her head and everything. <laughs> Um, so yeah, she, she does it to provoke and, and to be edgy. Right. Obviously. And, and I, at first I thought she was an anarchist, but what she explains herself as a nonconformist. Um, and I, I feel like that too, a lot of ways, you know, when I was in high school, it was like, well, everybody else is doing that. So it must be wrong. Right? <laughs> the oppositional defiance disorder as opposed to. Yeah. Anything of real principle. Right. So, is, so she, is she, she's legit like a 14-year-old female then? Because that part wasn't clear to me Yeah, as she's well. either 14 or 16. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I thought she, she said something with, about two years, like Greta being two years older than her. Yeah. So, I think Greta's 16. I think she's 14. Okay. So, Sophie's 14, I believe. I, I, you know, don't quote me on it. I don't really know. I was, it was, it was not clear and I, you know, bit based on the outfit that she was wearing, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I, I was not able to place an age at all. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have even I, guessed as old as 14. Oh uh, yeah. She looks 14 or younger for sure. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, hard to, hard to tell sometimes. Um, but, uh, her content is way better than, than Greta's and, and much more, uh, thought provoking. And, and I think that's what, that's the purpose of her channel is to, explain things in a way that uh has you know that's not being 
portrayed uh, by by mainstream media or anybody else, really. Yeah. So she's trying to be edgy on purpose, and of course that's really offensive to people. Absolutely. Um, and they and they go out of you know the mainstream YouTube podcasts and stuff go out of their way to demonize her and and uh, you know make up things like say she's a racist. But even in that in that video, it was funny. She was like. She, she said everybody should get out of school and she even she said well if if you're black and you're in, in, you're in public school and you want to get out tell them uh it's it's uh modern day slavery to, to require <laughs> them to be in there and so it's like like yeah get out of school man <laughs> uh, one, one more i don't know if you can answer this either it do we is this I'm, the the phrase is going to be wrong, but is this like original content? Do we know if this is like her original thoughts, or is she just an actress portraying it's, this person, much like Greta? Another guy. I think she she gets help from a slightly older boy. I think he's like sixteen or eighteen, something like that. Uh, I think he's from Brazil or something. Okay. So it it is original content. She helped. She she co-writes it with another boy. Okay, um, that's very yeah. creative then for that age. I will say that. Sure, sure, but it's not—it's not just her. But I mean, yeah. for, for for I mean, actually, I think it's better than maybe probably. I actually maybe I want to model her idea, um, and maybe we'll try to make a YouTube video uh, and see if we can do it. But it's it's very well done. Um, these you know these two kids are really smart, and it's it's impressive what two people can do on their own. So, I thought that it was. An interesting point that she made about how, well, when a young person is saying all the things that is acceptable in the media and cheered by the media, then they say, oh, what a wonderful woman it is, or girl she is, like Greta. Um, but then she says, well, but when I say things uh, that are on my mind, then people all just uh, sweep it off saying, oh, you, you're being brainwashed, you're being controlled and manipulated and yeah. and get real. <laughs> Well, we would say the same thing about Greta, though. So, I mean, it, it plays both ways, depending well, the, on the, what your position is. The difference is, is uh, Greta's parents are wearing the same T-shirts as her. Uh, so, in, in, in the case of Soph, her parents don't really have anything to do with it. <laughs> that we know of. Or, I mean, are we right. pretty confident well, with that statement? Well, I'm pretty confident. Um, so, Soph went on, on uh, live, uh, Alex Jones, actually. And he, oh, was, okay. and he was talking to him about, uh, her about it. And Soph was upset because, of course, she's doing this to be controversial. And, and, and she appreciates uh, when people attack her because then she gets to explain her position. Um, and, and she enjoys doing that. Uh, so, But the bad thing is there's a whole bunch of reporters, mainstream media people, that are trying to dig up information. And they found her father's phone number. And they called him up and started calling him a racist and a Nazi and all these things. And it's and she was like, they're they're totally not. They're like they they voted for Hillary Clinton. They're they're like <laughs> main you know kind of mainstream, uh, classical liberal. Uh, you know that would mean liberal, libertarian for us smart people. Um, but you know basically they they are just parents that let the kid do what she wants and uh come up with her own ideas and uh and and yeah she's doing it she's you know maybe even making a little bit money off of it and uh but most importantly she enjoys what she's doing so yeah it's, it's like i said a fantastic presentation um yeah and, it, and it's a little bit opposite of uh greta what well, actually i think greta probably does enjoy the attention and the rage that she is giving everybody um but uh, she's not doing it because she's afraid. And Greta says, you know, that her dreams were destroyed and you know, all these yes. nightmare scenario things. You, you, you ruined so, my childhood. So if that's the reason Greta is doing it, uh, you know, maybe it's the wrong reason because uh, there's plenty of evidence, you know, to the contrary of a doomsday scenario. Which, which, the, which the left will not look at and even if they see it, will not acknowledge that it exists. Yeah. So, so it's, you're never going to convince them otherwise. Yeah, and, I, and they hide their information. So I, I haven't yet confirmed this, but uh, I, I just watched a video about uh, NASA hiding information. So the information that they hid was uh, 1878, supposedly was the hottest year on record. Um, and uh, NASA had a chart that had that data included on it, 
uh, not just the hottest day, but the, the hottest month on record. Um, and later charts, they actually re removed that, that part. So that instead of starting wow. the, the chart in 1860, they just moved it to 1890. And so that the, the the warm data isn't there, and then they change some of the warm data to make it cooler, and then the modern stuff they overinflate the temperature, so it makes it look like the hockey stick that they're trying to get, you know, the super yeah. temperatures that are just like increasing, accelerating, and, and that's actually not even reality. So, um, it so I'm I'm still trying to find out more about 1878. Um, and so what he says is, though, that during that time, 50 million people around the world died uh, from drought and heat. Um, so if if we had record temperatures before, of course, that could happen again, except the only, only thing this time is they'll say, oh, it was, it was because of humans. Yeah. Which we know actually, actually, uh, there's there's even scientific proof that that CO2 doesn't cause the kind of warming uh, that would have caused even, well, obviously it happened before without all the CO2. So it could happen again without all the CO2 with or without it. So, um, it's, that's, that's part of the alarmism. Right. And, and, you know, he, heat waves can happen. And, uh, but the debate is whether it's caused by humans or not. And sa same thing, you know, with, with a hurricane. So a hurricane comes through and say, Oh, well, it's, it's caused by humans, of course. Which is ridiculous, but um, but yeah, it's the Chinese the weather machine, Matt MC. Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything about uh, the environment, but what I am saying is definitely not focus on CO2 because it's not it. Um, Einstein actually wrote wrote a paper uh, about this about uh, about CO2 uh, and its effect on. Uh, on warming, and he said that if there's equilibrium uh, in the in the temperature, and, and that that CO2 won't cause uh, warming, it's like impossible for the CO2 to ca cause the warming. So, what we do know is is that if you double the amount of CO2, then that what what it what it equals is one degree of warming. But it doesn't cause an acceleration in temperature, so we can double it from now, which you know it's it is actually high relatively speaking to to history. It's I think 400 parts per million or something like that, or billion. I don't even know. So something must be done then if it's but relatively. Yeah, so, so if you double it again, we could we could get uh, you know one one degree more uh, temperature. But it's not going to cause runaway inflation of the temperature. The ice caps um, aren't going to melt and wipe out the middle well, the middle part of the world. Anyway, uh, we've had warming for steady warming for a long time, and that's what the chart actually shows. Just you know, steady warming, nothing out of the ordinary, uh, nothing accelerating. So CO two doesn't drive the warming; it's just been warming. Um, so now, where was I going with that? Yeah, so. So anyway, th there is scientific proof that says CO2 doesn't cause the, the type of warming that they're claiming. And that's why all the models that they, they make are always error on, on the warm side. And that's why, when, that's why they edit the data to try to make it, you know, to give them the results that they want to see. Because they want, they want to prove their own bias, so that, which, yeah. which is funny to me. And... Uh, so I was, I was thinking about this this morning. Like, if you wanted to believe one scientist or over another, uh, how would you do it? And so if a scientist says, okay, CO2 causes warming, and if this is true, it's, it's a crisis, right? If it's right. true, it's a crisis. Then what you would want is a scientist that looks for every single possibility that would, would erase the crisis situation because, you know, there's a chance that he's wrong. So, you, you know... So he might believe that CO2 causes runaway inflation, but you want to be very sure before you alarm everybody because alarming people is you know dangerous, right? They See, well, okay, so that's that's where I fall on this issue, right? Like I don't I don't want to presume to know the answer, mm -hmm. uh, but what I do know is that there are uh, contradictory reports from each side, both citing scientific studies and scientific data 
both citing scientific models that predict the future, right? And you go like, well, how do you know which is right? And the left will, you know, snap down your throat and go like, well, it's clearly going to be warming. And, you know, the, the, the consensus is in and the, the handful of, you know, uh, adverse opinions don't matter. Um, just believe us that the, the, the disaster model is the one we must follow. And my, my, my typical response is, well, all right, that's fine for you. So you behave accordingly. Like, but you know, if, if that's what you believe, uh, behave in a manner consistent with what you believe. Right. And where I would draw the line is when those behaviors manifest into policy decisions that affect me. Right. Like when, when well, the, an, when the answer they, is to, they want to affect you. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But they, they, they're not going to affect me. The, the, the penalty um, is a financial penalty on me through higher taxes to pay for this nonsense or for higher consumer goods because the corporations are being forced to pay taxes for this nonsense, right? Just do, do what you do to be consistent with what you believe, right? If you believe the, the middle of the planet's going to get wiped out, you know, start your migration north now. The problem is they are also statists, and they believe that they can control everybody and the environment. I might uh, add one point that is always uh, sort of overlooked with regard to this whole thing is the fact that the government has, uh, not only in this country but in other countries, massive programs to encourage development in disaster areas. You know, like they have the, the federal flood insurance uh, to encourage people because they say, well, don't worry if your house gets uh, destroyed by a storm. Don't worry if your house gets destroyed by a flood. Um, the federal government will come in and, and rescue you. I mean, there's one uh, house in Jasper, Texas, for example, that uh, has been rebuilt 18 times by federal flood insurance. Uh, and the total cost, I think, was many, many times more than the original cost of the house. And they keep doing it. Well, because the government is a solution to every answer, regardless of of um, what the panic and problem is. And we, we've seen that here in Hawaii. Uh, the government didn't like the fact that it was unfair that some people would want to build on a volcano and um, that it was unfair that they had to... Uh, they couldn't get financing because insurance companies wouldn't insure them. So the I wonder why the, the government mandated that everybody, all the insurance companies, had to give the same rates to them as to anybody else. So they did, and then thousands of homes were built at the base of a volcano, and then it erupted, and um, it destroyed the homes. And everybody's weeping and moaning about uh, the losses. You know, human beings are capable of assessing these situations if left uh, to evaluate the risks and rewards on their own. But when the government steps in, as they always do, um, to remove the risk, they set up what is moral hazard, encouraging people to do reckless behavior. And that's, uh, uh, I would say that another point on this with regard to the global warming uh, crisis is that the, the market, as Bjorn Lomborg has often pointed out, uh, has often provided solutions to this situation, but it's very much ignored by the community because it's only the solution is only something if it's the government provided. But when fracking allowed natural gas exploration, uh, Bjorn Lamberg pointed out that um, by shifting over to a very efficient, low-cost uh, fuel of natural gas instead of petroleum and coal, that the United States actually reduced its carbon footprint more than all the signatories to this Kyoto Protocol combined. And the U.S. didn't sign that, but the others did and blamed the United States for not uh, not participating. But just by the innovations in the marketplace, it reduced the carbon footprint more than all the other signatories to the Kyoto Protocol combined just by allowing the market to find its solutions. Yeah, um, exactly. And that's, that's one of the things that Soph points out in, in her video is that, that China signed these these uh pledges to do something and and she doesn't realize that they're actually not going to do anything about it uh, because <laughs> you know they've got bigger problems uh they've got you know a billion people uh, to to uh you know provide energy for and and they're in in the middle of still growing um so yeah of course i hope they they switch to something else and one of the things that chinese are working on china china and india they're working on thorium nuclear 
power plants. And once they get those up, uh, then they're going to be much less reliant on coal. So they're likely uh, going to leapfrog the West and the United States sure. if and when they get and, those running. And that's why I'm, I'm really hopeful and, and uh, optimistic about the future. And it's not going to be because uh, carbon gets taxed. It's going to be because uh, humans are good for the planet and they're going to find a ways to make it even better. Absolutely. And uh, poor, poor Greta is, I, I guess, going to be terrified for her whole life. Uh, and, you know, I can't blame her parents and the media and everything else. Um, well, notice the, the point that you made that all these other countries signed these Paris Treaty and the Copenhagen and Kyoto uh, treaties, and then they get a, a good boost in publicity and public relations, and then they they don't do they don't they don't uh, have to go through anything later anyway because somebody else will be in office, will have to you know um, uh, fulfill the promises that were made. I'm kind of surprised that. Uh, presidents of the United States didn't just go ahead and sign the things and then not do anything, just as all the other <laughs> right, governments right. do. Uh, they could have gotten a lot more public, uh, uh, you know, a, a favor by, by saying that. Well, in, in the case of Trump, I think it's because the not signing it was more, was more symbolic to the base than signing it, right? That's it's, true. No, it's, it, the, it's the very I'm, appeal. It's the yeah, it's the appeal of America first. We're not going into these international agreements that harm America. Yeah, you know, which in, which I'm actually for not going along with the international uh, agreements because um, you know we should we should do what's in our best interests and um, not at the detriment of, of other countries. Um, but you know, not we're we're ex we're we're a net exporter of fossil fuels now. Uh, that won't be the case forever. Um, you know, especially when when these other uh, forms of technology improve, so they can generate their their electricity cheaper. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's 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 not necessary to to get in into these. Uh... May I add one more dimension to this? <clears throat> um, for a century, um, the United States and Great Britain and other countries have have been in the game of subsidizing a particular form of energy, uh, the oil industry, by providing the protection and insurance costs uh, for them at taxpayer expense rather than those companies providing it for themselves. And that's gotten us into a lot of other troubles, including the wars in the Middle East, I think, that would not have uh, involved the United States at all and Britain if they had not been... Uh, providing this massive corporate welfare subsidy in the form of U.S. military protection of their operations. If they had to pay the full cost of, in, of military protection and insurance for dealing in very, very volatile parts of the world, um, they, they would probably not because they would find, well, then alternative sources of energy or alternative locations for energy would be more appealing and more attractive if they had to pay it out of their own pockets and then pass those full costs along to consumers uh, then clearly petroleum in in Canada where there's abundance of it um, would have been more attractive um, because it wouldn't have involved the you know all the protection and military costs that the Middle East does it's very easy to get it out of the ground there but it's a very volatile region and also by motivating companies to locate where it's safer you also motivate dictators and rulers in other parts of the world to behave better in order to attract investment rather than just have the government make an the US government make an alliance with them and then they don't have to worry about uh, the volatility the you know the carnage that they cause do we really want to see $6 a gallon for gas though without the military protecting those things and paying the true fair market price for for oil yeah i think i think there's a lot of uh unknown costs or unrealized so you know there we spent four trillion dollars uh, in the iraq war and we spend a lot of money you know defending saudi arabia so a lot of the costs are hidden um so are, are is it really are do we really have cheap gas because of the the defense of saudi arabia or would it be cheaper so i made the point yesterday that if we just 
let whoever wants to attack Saudi uh, do that. Uh, whoever takes over will sell us the oil probably at half the price that the Saudis do because, you know, what do they need all the oil for? Um, of course, they might sell it to other people too, uh, but I think that's just as fair. Well, then, is the state not making up for it then by subsidizing the new solar plans everywhere? With with you get tax breaks and discounts for moving off of that uh, state well, oil. Well, that's a that's still a cost though. It's not it's not saving anything if if, if it's subsidized by the government. Yeah, I'm I saying, think. Um, go ahead. Though, if if the government wasn't subsidizing the price of oil by this military and insurance protection. Uh, those other forms of energy would be more attractive on their own. They wouldn't need subsidies, you know, because the alternative source of, uh, say, solar or, or um, you know, tidal or nuclear or whatever. Uh, nuclear is another one that receives an enormous subsidy, two forms of subsidy. Uh, one is uh, limited liability. Ever since the Price-Anderson Act in 1957, that was um, a law to essentially absolve uh, nuclear power production of the full cost of limited of liability insurance companies wouldn't insure those because um, of the extraordinarily high costs of of uh, that could be associated with a disaster and banks wouldn't provide the funding and financing for those uh, facilities without the protection so congress passed a law essentially limiting to to one half of one percent the the cost of um of liability to the producers of it, saying, "Well, it's going to be whatever. If there's a disaster, it has to be borne by the taxpayers or the or the the victims, no matter what." Why don't we see form, more nuclear then? Because I I feel like nuclear is underused well, currently. It's, I think it's because they don't approve any of the the permits to do it anymore. So I, I can't remember was the last nuclear plant in the U.S. approved uh, like 50 years ago or something like that. I don't can I have to I'll yeah, I don't know when okay. it was but, but it's, right. it's been they're, it's been a while much. but they simply just don't approve the permits for them. Well, I think I think that's because of the the fear of the disaster scenario, sure. right? The the yeah. the, well, the upside it's also, it's also because of competition. So the oil lo- uh, industry will lobby against any nuclear plant being built. Yeah, but I I'm I'm just saying, you know, that may be true. But if they're if the if the insurance is limiting liability to to the nuclear plants, like why not? Why wouldn't we see then more of it aside from the oil lobby? Like someone someone well, would say like we'll we'll it's simply bo- that politics and permitting. If there was no permit requirement, then it, then yes, somebody would just do it regardless of the oil company. Yeah. Another uh, subsidy to nuclear is the waste disposal. That's been a mounting problem in the U.S. government, the Department of Energy has uh, amassed these huge uh, warehouses, uh, essentially open pits, trying to figure out what to do with uh, massive amounts of um, of nuclear disposal, and that's um, been borne by the cost of the ta- taxpayers for the most part, um, and that's a that's also one additional cost. They haven't really quite figured out what to, how to resolve that. Interesting, and and there is actually a potential solution. And oddly enough, it's it's starting more uh, nuclear power plants because the the future nuclear plants can burn a lot of the waste. Mm, yeah. So so that's one of the uh, uh, there. There's actually probably ten benefits of the new thorium plants. They can uh, desalinate water. They can create radioactive isotopes that are good for medical use. Um, they uh, they they don't have any chance of meltdown because uh, if they they have a what do you call it walk, walk away shutdown. So if, if all the humans just walk away from the plant, uh, the worst thing that can happen is it automatically shuts down and, and the radioactive material uh, drains into the tank and solidifies. Um, so yeah, there's lots of benefits to that, and I think it's coming pretty soon. They're, they they're st- starting to build the buildings and, and run their tests. Uh, some of the tests have been successful already. Um, so yeah, and and the U.S. actually had a thorium plant uh, working, uh, I think in the '60s, and uh, so yeah, we know it works. Um, just ha- we haven't been able to uh, monetize it yet. 
So that's what that's what the real uh, energy is being focused on. So with the with the limited downside to a disaster for thorium, then why not? And and with proof of concept, as you say, is it still just politics as to why no one's made investments in in building more well, of those in the United States? Well, there there is a lot of investment, and there are there are designers in in the U.S but they're not being built in the U.S. yet. And one of the reasons is because if you want to build a nuclear plant, uh, currently you have to have all these extra safeguards, right? You have to have huge concrete buildings uh, to protect uh, in the case of uh, thermal runaway and uh, you know hydrogen explosions and, and uh, uh, steam explosions and stuff. So, uh, with, but with thorium, you don't need all those things. Um, but they still follow, have to follow the, those rules? Yeah, you still have to follow those rules because it's still a nuclear plant. So oh, th- that's, well, that's, that's the thing. Um, they don't know how to regulate a thorium plant because they don't, they don't even understand it yet. But the, the political interests, of course, have a, a deep interest in not even letting uh, any more nuclear plants exist anyway. So um, a, a lot of it is political. But uh, like I said, they're, they're going to have these – these plants are going to exist – uh, anyway, in in China and India, uh, I think even in another country, I can't remember if it was like Denmark or somewhere else, but um, it's yeah. It's, so eventually, uh, they're they're going to be ahead of us, um, and hopefully, they'll they will sell us uh, the technology, at, you know, as, as it's being proven, and the energy back. <laughs> sure, cheap Chinese energy. Anything else on? The, the environment or Greta? We started with Greta. Well, well I think what uh, maybe Ken wanted to talk about uh, immigration a little bit. Yeah, we can get into that. Is, is there anything uh, really uh, uh, concerning that you want or ho- hopefully uh, inflammatory and in, in what do you call it, nonconformist views <laughs> we, we want to hear? Well, it's funny because I, I think of the views that I have as being uh, nonconformist and, and radical, but... Um, but I always try to present it in a way that seems quite reasonable and, and rational because I'm, I'm always trying to persuade people that uh, liberty is of use and that uh, uh, standing in the way of liberty is not only pra- not only impractical, it does, does harm to the economies of the world. But it's, um, I mean, freedom is, is practical, brings benefits to the, to the world's uh, uh, productivity and prosperity. Uh, it's humane because it does great benefits for lots of people, and most of all because liberty is ethical. It, it seems like the most fundamental um, uh, premise of liberty throughout history and throughout the world is that if you're living under tyranny, you're either the tyrant yourself or you're someone who's content under the tyrant. Either you like it or you're content to remain, but you don't like it. Maybe you try to change, but you suffer uh, and the other option to opt out is just to move, to try and get away from the tyrant. That's been um, the whole of human history, and people have done that moving all over the planet, uh, trying to improve their lives, uh, leaving famine, going to where the weather or the climate or the crops are better, uh, leaving uh, invaders, uh, tyrants, and, and moving to a place where you have independence and freedom or, or less tyranny. And uh, it seems... The one thing that seems most fearful to people in countries is to have newcomers come and and share the liberties that they might enjoy. Um, I think that it takes a great deal of courage uh, to leave everything that's familiar to you and go to some place that's completely unfamiliar um, to try and establish a new life, uh, going to a place where it's potentially hostile, you know, and very difficult. But I find it's a very self-selective process. The people who do move from one place on the planet to another place are often the most, often the most diligent, courageous, hardworking um, uh, people who are, are willing to take a lot of risks. And that's the, the essence of entrepreneurship. They are the ones who are much more likely to be entrepreneurs when they come to this country. They, they start businesses at twice the rate of the of native-born people in the United States. They are responsible for as maybe as, uh, as much as uh, uh, 20% of all the new businesses started up in the United States every year. Um, and uh, so I think, and 
you know, you run across people who are either scientists like, uh, you know, Einstein was or great philosophers like Rand or, or Mises or Hayek who were all refugees. And there's a lot of people who come willing to just do hard work uh, in the fields pulling, uh, picking lettuce and doing uh, things that uh, other people will disdain. But so we you, look around us, so a lot of our life is dependent on that sort of thing, and so we ought to allow a lot more freedom. You you brought up the term refugee, and I was going to ask you if you if you wanted to make a distinction uh, between immigrants and refugees in in the current societal structure as it exists today. Actually, I don't make the distinction. I think everybody who moves, they do it for a combination of reasons. For example, the slave who was running away from the uh, the southern plantation in uh, antebellum uh, United States. Um, I, I've tried to win, wonder, well, how would people today classify them as an economic refugee or as a political refugee? Well, clearly the political system everywhere determines the economic conditions. So sure. even if a person doesn't understand why they're poor and desperately uh, uh, struggling in life, um, and maybe they, they, they didn't uh, write an article in a newspaper or challenge in a protest, uh, the tyranny, their desire to move their feet to get away from a tyrant and go to the place where there's less tyranny, um, it's it's the same to me. Okay. Like a refugee and a migrant, uh, I don't accept the, the distinctions that they make for those things. Okay. So let me just bring up real quick then what, what they're, what the news the, the mainstream media is calling the uh, the refugee crisis going on in Europe, right? In which um, those those countries of w- from which the refugees are migrating from are emigrating from um, are the ones that have been like bombed to hell by Western countries, right? Like they've their their livelihood destroyed, their cities destroyed, they've got no place to go. So it's not, I don't want to say uh, it's, you know, involuntary migration, but they're, they've kind of run out of options for survival, right? And so they're, they're going to these, you know, European countries, uh, was it Germany and, and England or wherever up there, France, and they're, they're calling it a crisis because there's so many of them coming in. And because of the situation that they're immigra- emigrating from, it's not like they're coming with the entrepreneurial mindset to start a business to, you know, to make better. They're just trying to escape a war zone. Um, and I, I, well, both, I mean, they are escaping a war zone, but if they came to a new place and were allowed to work and allowed to start up a business, because most of those European countries in particular have a lot of barriers to entry to the labor market and a lot of barriers to, entry into the into the commercial market starting a business or or, or working at a wage uh, without all those barriers they would be I think quite eager and willing to work and uh, okay. of course it's the state that that offers uh, welfare but that's used as, as an excuse to, to exclude them because they might take welfare that well, is the excuse that's being used it, it is yeah and because I, you got you got you know tens of thousands of refugees coming across the border and immediately leeching on to state programs well, or so they but, say. Yeah. Well, well, the people people who are handing it to them are the ones responsible for it. You know, the politicians and the and the society that voted for these those welfare states are the ones responsible for it, and they are the very same ones who prevented people from uh, working and uh, starting businesses. And also, on a much bigger scale, what is driving much of this immigration is also policies of the United States, Europe, and Japan. Um, those countries, first of all, have enormous trade barriers against the things that people in those countries could be producing. They could produce sugar, they could produce flowers, they could produce corn, things that aren't allowed to be sold in Europe, United States, and Japan because of these massive trade barriers. You know, they are agricultural countries, but then the United States, Europe, and Japan, they buy up vast quantities of these agricultural products from their own farmers and send them abroad under, uh, as, as foreign aid. And it undermines and destroys the farmers in many of these countries. Look at the example of Haiti. All the white rice farmers in Haiti were were wiped out by the massive uh, distribution of free uh, rice from the United States. Same thing happens across Africa by European countries. A second kind of subsidy, I mean, um, uh, welfare isn't just the welfare to farmers in the rich countries, um, but it's the... uh, 
the drug wars uh, are, are things that give uh, enormous harm to the countries in those countries. So we look at Central America and South America, the, the drug gangs and the violence that's generated by the massive uh, 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 drug wars that the United States feeds. Actually, the five permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations are the ones that provide 90% of the weapons and, and military assistance to these countries all around the world to help tyrants. Basically, the United States and European countries have, have provided enormous uh, assistance to the tyrants. You know, you look back through the whole history of this stuff from uh, uh, Shah Pahlavi and you know, Saddam Hussein and, and um, Mobutu and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the list goes on endlessly of the people that, that the, the tyrants that have received massive amounts of assistance. Sure. A military assistance which does tremendous harm to those people in those countries um, uh, so I, I would say that much of what is driving the people uh, uh, into a hard condition and wanting to leave is stuff that is generated by the richer countries and their interventionisms around the world well the, if that's true then aren't they obligated to take those those refugees those migrants in and and provide welfare services for them because of the hardship that they have caused them to endure in their own country? Well, I'd say that there's two kinds of people in the rich countries, the inviters and the excluders. The inviters uh, view um, the immigrants with courage. They embrace their freedom. They welcome the competition. They, uh, you know, they would like to help them. They would hire them. They would uh, allow them to work and and uh, be productive members of society. And there are excluders who say that they don't want to have them around. They don't want to have people of different races and ethnic groups. They don't want to have to provide welfare. I think that they should. both groups should be allowed to do in a free society what they want to do. The excluders should be allowed to exclude them from their property. The inviters should be allowed to include them in their property. Um, but the big area of contention is, well, what do you do with government property? Well, I'd say that the government... And what is property, government property, first of all? <laughs> that's right. It, well, it shouldn't be government property in the first place because that uh, then means that whoever controls the government essentially owns the property. Um, so I privatize uh, vast, vast amounts of the government land and make it more available. Um, I li like, for example, I have a friend up uh, in Canada, Alberta, uh, Drew Souter. He says, you know... Uh, you, you could easily accommodate hundreds of free zones um, the size of Hong Kong uh, throughout uh, vast open territories and that could accommodate refugees from all over the world. Uh, you could uh, just in uh, 24 uh, uh, free zones the size of the oil sands territory up in Alberta where nobody's really populating uh, well, yeah, most of, most of northern Canada is like uninhabitable, though. <laughs> that's right. Well, no, you call it uninhabitable, but I lived in Alaska a long time, and it was quite okay. habitable, and right. actually more so than than maybe parts of, of Canada. And also, they also consider, they used to think that the deserts of Nevada were uninhabitable until 1930, when they just allowed the freedom to gamble. And then you got Las Vegas, massive metropolitan areas, just simply by allowing freedom in certain areas. And I would say you'd have the same kind of freedom if you have uh, just, uh, let's say, Queen Charlotte Island off the coast of uh, of uh, Canada. You could have you could have another uh, fifty Hong Kongs uh, there. And, um, and and keep in mind, Hong Kong is the most densely populated country in the world, and yet it's still forty percent of it is zoned country park where people aren't allowed to live on. They have they have yes, dense population, but they they accommodate a very comfortable lifestyle. And Hong Kong now, because of its freedom, uh, went from being the poorest country in the world back in around nineteen fifty to being richer than the United States on a per capita basis. It, and they did it by accommodating uh, a massive influx of refugees who are leaving, glad to leave uh, communist China and glad to leave uh, communist Vietnam in order to find a place where they could produce. And, and they did. And now it's, a, you know, it's held up as a, as a star of performance where we could have that same kind of star performance just allowing free zones, free economic zones in um, places all around the world. In the, in the United States... Uh, 
all, you know, people fly for hours across the United States from Los Angeles to New York. And you look out the window and you are flying over vast, vast oh, empty spaces. Only 3% of all the land area of, of the United States is uh, cities and suburbs. And the rest of it is, you know, you could say open spaces. Well, you could, there, there's an enormous amount of space. When people say there's no room, for uh, refugees, think of where people throughout history have always gone throughout the world. They've gone to cities. They've been leaving the countryside, moving into cities. It's crowded in cities in New York City and Los Angeles uh, and cities all around the world. Yes, they're crowded, but they go there willingly because that's where the opportunities are. That's where economic growth is and prosperity. Um, if people didn't like cities and were always trying to move to the countryside to get away from other people, that would be an entirely different picture. Yes. Well, and we saw some of that picture, uh, me and M, when, when we made our move to New Hampshire for the Free State Project, uh, we, we did a cross-country drive through like 14 states um, and Niagara Falls, Canada. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and it, was, it was amazing to me. Like, you know, so we're on the freeway, right? Like, you know, we're, we're freeway driving. We're not doing too much like, you know, city sightseeing, except when we get to our destination. But in, in the Western states, when we went through like um, California, uh, Arizona, um, Utah, Colorado, like that that region, what was amazing to me was, like you said, Ken, the, the vast amounts of expansive uh, available property. And then like 50 miles out of the way of nothing, like was a suburb like being built. Right. And I go like, who would buy a house like 50 miles from nothing? You know, but that's where they're building it. Like, you know, it's like it's it literally was like an exit off the freeway and then like, you know, a, a, a handful of cul-de-sacs. And then that was it. And then there was like another 50 miles the other direction before you saw anything else again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they're, they're building it out there. Right. And then, you know, I get I, so, when I brought this up, someone, someone said like, you know, well, you build the suburbs and, you know, the, the wealthy people who want to get away from everybody buy it up. And then eventually, like the the business and um, cultural scene, I guess catches up to that, right? Like the the houses are there first, and pretty soon it's like, well, you know what, be convenient, like a doctor's office, like right across the street, right? So then they cross the freeway, they you know zone for commercial lands, and you know put up a mall or whatever. Um, but yeah, tons tons of and not even like farmland, right? Just just brush and forest and open space and do whatever the hell you want with it, land. Um, out there on you know on that drive that there's no way you can tell me right <laughs> having having driven through and and seen the the vast amounts of openness there's no way you can you can convince me um at all that we're overpopulated at least in the united states and you know specifically the western united states not even close way way too much land available for whatever you want to do um and currently just nothing being done with it but federal ownership Consider what people think of when they think of overpopulation. They think, well, somebody's got to go. <laughs> and it's never the, never themselves. They, they don't say, well, I think uh, it's too populated. I think I should shoot myself or something like that. I wish uh, they would, and, though. I wish they and, would. <laughs> Some people that maybe be attractive for. But consider what it is, what happens with prosperity. It's the, it's the world's best form of birth control. Because as, become, as people become more prosperous, this is throughout the world, they also have fewer and fewer children. And almost every country of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the main industrial countries of the world, uh, have declining population. Oh, now I can't hear you, Ken. Hello? Now I can hear you. Okay. Um, I guess the point that I was making was that... Uh, the last thing uh, I heard was declining population and then yeah, silence. Yeah, okay. Among all the industrial countries of the world, they have uh, uh, a fertility rate that's below the replacement rate, meaning that they that the, the births per woman is uh, less than 2.1 um, uh, children per per woman, and that means that the, the population is declining. It's not, not at the point where the population is going to replace itself. So they're all declining in population. And uh, for countries like uh, Japan and even China, uh, this uh, is a gloomy prospect for the future because they, as their population ages, they don't have young people uh, to you know, produce the wealth and the economic growth that they need in their old age as they retire. And uh, so they really could 
solve this problem quite readily, a problem, they, they could solve this issue quite readily by allowing more people to come from other countries. Sure. And the United States, and I mean, all the European countries are, are in this boat too. They uh, should be welcoming the millions of people who are desperate for their lives. And consider what this is. People are desperate for their lives. What would we want if we were in their shoes? We would want a, a place of refuge. Consider now how many millions of people wanted to leave Hitler's Germany before the war broke out. Millions of them. Anne Frank's uh, father twice applied for a visa to the United States and was twice denied it, as were thousands upon thousands of, of Jews who were then later gassed in the concentration camps. Why were they denied? Because the quota was full. Why in the world is there a quota on the number of people who can move? And that's the, the most foolish thing. It's, it's, a, it's a vestige of the old protectionist notion that you could put up a quota on sugar, you could put up a quota on cotton. You know, you treat people in the same way. You put it in, but how many millions of people died as a, as a consequence of that? And that leads me to the notion that it doesn't matter on which side of the border a guard stands, whether he's keeping people in or on the other side of the border keeping people out. The consequence is the same. Those people just die. And then they're, they're lost. We, we don't think about them because they're dead. But how many ones just barely made it? You know, people like uh, von Mises and Hayek and, and Ayn Rand and Einstein and others who, who were able to escape they're these giants of philosophy and economics and, and science. How many more died because the quota was full and we didn't allow them in? Sure. Well, let's go back to the, the European model one more time because that's the one that gets the, like the in my newsfeed gets the most. Um, what about the migrants slash refugees that cross over the borders and the, the excuse that the excluders will give to keeping them out is that they don't understand the culture um, and therefore do not behave accordingly, um, and in some cases are violent towards natives. Um, and I've personally seen videos of like migrant violence towards natives. So I'm not going to discount the fact that it doesn't exist. I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist. Um, but is it, is it as big of a problem as they claim? Um, and what can be done for for those people, right? For the people who are victims of the actual violence of migrants and refugees, because those are the ones who are going to really want to say, well, no, keep them out because I had this nice, peaceful life with like members of my, you know, my bloodline and my community and my race. Um, and then you let these, all these migrants and refugees in and they, they run amok in the streets, basically. How do you address well, that? Yeah, violence uh, occurs. There's no question about it, and it does need to be addressed as an issue. Uh, but uh, the studies overwhelmingly indicate that uh, immigrants, documented or not, are less likely to be violent than the domestic population, the native-born population, in almost every country of the world. Um, okay, statistically speaking, but that doesn't address, well, what about a particular case? I always say that you have to hold people individually and personally accountable for their behavior, for their actions, not a collective view that everybody of that nationality is responsible for the behavior, bad behavior of one. For example, Timothy McVeigh was from New York, and he went to blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. It was a, it was a terrible de deed, killed hundreds of people, innocent children and, and adults alike. It was, it was a, a terrorist act. Now, he came from New York. Would that yep. mean that it would be logical that, to put up a, a wall around New York and say that, well, the people of New York are violent people. And we can't allow them to go to the rest of the country. Well, if there was um, a documented case of like, you know, a mass exodus of New York and that the mass exodus from New York was uh, violent members of that of the New York community, then bringing that violence outside, I think that would be a more... Uh, more relatable comparison to what the, the people in the European countries are claiming is going on there, right? It's not like one migrant crosses the border and, you know, does some damage. It's that there's a cultural difference that leads to more violence within that population. That's, that's a good point. Um, violence Can, breeds violence, no question sure. about it. And I think we can't ignore the overwhelming violence although it's sanitized with all the, uh, the, the proper language and all, uh, that the West brings on 
those Middle Eastern countries, for example, sure. the years and years and years of war. And, you know, just recently there, were, there, there was a bombing, bombing of a school, a bombing of a wedding, bombing of a, of a hospital. Um, well, those are written off as statistics, but it is extraordinary violence done to a population. If you're in the midst of it, you look around and you say, wow, this is just horrendous. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, I, I think we can't ignore the, 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 and the, the, the violence that is meted out on so many communities of the world because of the drug wars. You know, we have our, you know, our violence uh, at home and the drug gangs and so on, but the violence that's generated by these drug wars abroad, by the profits of um, the illegal drug trafficking and, and uh, uh, the drug uh, gangs that develop all throughout the world, um, is very much the consequence of the of the drug wars, the prohibition that the United States, Europe, and Japan have have um, created. So I, I hold the you know the I, I hold Europe also responsible for the violence that occurs in those other countries. Okay. They, they're not immune to it. They cause it uh, as well as uh, the people there. Well, let, let me give you one more anecdotal story then. Um, mm -hmm. This one from Hawaii while I was living there. Um, I never had any problems with this general group of people. Uh, I worked with uh, a handful of Micronesians. Are they, mm. they still a hated class over there? Because they, they didn't, didn't get a lot of respect when I was there. Um, but I remember talking to one of them. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember how the topic came up. But he basically said, like, in my country, right, this was like, this is the cultural norm there, which is why it's hard to make that transition over when when there's a when there's a cultural acceptance of violence migrating to a culture of non-acceptance right so i'm talking to him he's like in my country uh if you see like a cute girl right that it was it was culturally acceptable to just go over there and rape her because that's what you did that's what they did there <laughs> okay. right you you laugh yeah. but he said yeah uh, micronesia no problem here hmm. problem right hawaii problem so he had to like he had to temper his aggression to fit the culture that he moved to, right? And he right. was able to do that because he was a nice guy, had a job, just happened to be of Micronesian, you know, descent or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But in telling his story, right, that's, it was perfectly acceptable to do that there. Uh, I read another article, uh, I'm gonna, I'll let you address that in a second, but I read another article recently um, about the honor killings uh, that go on in India, right? I think it was mm. India or Pakistan or one of those regions over both. there. Both. Okay. Where it's it's culturally acceptable uh, to kill the female members, uh, to kill a, a woman in society as long as you gain the family's forgiveness, uh, not a crime, right? So the, it, was a it was a big deal when this dude was convicted um, because he killed his sister um, and his dad didn't forgive him. Uh, and then his dad changed his mind and forgave him, but they convicted him anyway and, and sentenced him away. So when you have, when you have, like I said, my point is like those violent cultures where that type of violence is acceptable, moving into traditional Western cultures where that type of violence and behavior is unacceptable, um, the migrants, the refugees don't know that it's unacceptable because they've never been in a culture where that wasn't okay. And therefore they act according to their culture, not the new culture that they move to. And I think that's the, the overarching concern of the exclusionists. Uh, from the European model and maybe even Hawaii, right? Cause again, like I said, I don't remember, I, I remember having some Micronesian friends um, and I don't remember uh, anyone else ever talking good about them there. Right. It's just for whatever <laughs> reason, unacceptable. Um, but how do you, how do you address that when it's a cultural shift um, uh, migrating over? Well, as a libertarian, I hold to the non-aggression principle as being the overwhelming guide for human behavior. It, it, violence is not, justifiable by well it's our culture uh, it's okay for us to initiate violence against our this other person because it's our culture i i don't accept that the non-aggression principle um puts that out of out of bounds and people should everybody should be held accountable for uh, for that and you can't excuse it by culture and i would say the you know the same thing could be applied to the United States. People in the United States think that it's perfectly okay to bomb other countries. And, uh, and it's, well, it's part of our culture. We've always been doing it. No, it isn't. It's still wrong uh, okay. to initiate violence. And so 
I would say in all of those cases, somebody comes, I, I, you know, I remember the, the Netherlands has a, a kind of introductory um, course for anyone coming into the, to the Netherlands and uh, uh, seeking to emigrate there. They have an introductory course to expose them intellectually or educationally uh, to differences that they may not be familiar with. For example, they, they show in this uh, film that often women uh, go topless at the beach and so on, and they show them in this film, this is, can, it, you, it might occur in, in the Netherlands, and it doesn't mean that you uh, go beat the woman, you don't, uh, you know, attack her or rape her. Um, it's part of an introductory thing to the, to the culture. Um, so I wouldn't mind if you want to have such a, an introduction. It, I can't imagine that, <laughs> how complicated it would be to put together a thing about what is American culture because you'd sure. find tremendous differences in uh, American culture. In fact, there is no such thing, but it has to be rooted in the basic premise of the non-aggression principle. It's just not right to initiate uh, force against uh, another person for any reason. So if that course were a requirement to, to gain immigrant status, then could you hold people up at the border until they've gone through the court? Kind of like uh, Hanama Bay over there, where you got to watch the, the sea turtle video yeah, yeah. before you go to the beach? I, I don't mind any kind of screening process so long as it doesn't include a, a, a quota. The quota just simply says, uh, sorry, once we've reached this, this number, there's no more allowed. Also, a thing that bothers me is the fact that, you know, the government always cre treats people as a problem. You, read, you find that when you go to the DMV and you want, a driver's license and you waited long long lines and they have one window open to try process everybody if you go to walmart the, the the marketplace always treats people as an opportunity you go to walmart if they got two or three people in a line they open up another line you know there's there's vast number of, of uh processors registrars uh, regist uh, registers in order to process the customers through that's the way instead of spending 20 billion dollars on a wall they ought to spend a tiny fraction of that just uh, to, to make the processing of people uh, very, very rapid and easy. Now, you can screen people. In fact, it makes it easier to screen people if it's an easy screening process so people go through uh, the gate rather than uh, going all over the border and scrambling over the gate and under the gate and through the gate. Um, I mean, uh, the, the, the border walls, because you, you don't have any way of screening those people. But if they're coming through the gate, then you can, you can screen people. And I don't mind certain criteria i think you could say well if somebody has a uh, a history of violent behavior they, they've got a police record now keep in mind though you have to be a little bit careful about these things remember the american revolutionaries would probably not be qualified to enter into the united states today they were all revolutionaries they were all anarchists and they would um you know they <laughs> so you can't just say well just because you oppose the government that you were coming from that you can't come to the united states but initiation of violent behavior against other people, I think, is a disqualification for coming in. And that would where, where do you draw the line on that? Where do you draw well, the I, line on that? Because of my, my co-host on Free Talk Live has a murder conviction uh, because he was like the driver um, when he was a teenager. He's now in his 40s um, and within this year was turned away at the airport in Japan uh, after trying to go to Japan for, for a murder conviction that happened 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, but, in a particular case, I don't know. I would say that it did. Now he had a conviction. I suppose he went through. Uh, he, did he go to prison and spend some yeah, time? Yeah, and spent nine years in prison. Well, I'd say that once he's served the time, that that should be sufficient. Um, you know, to to say that then, okay, you you were convicted, you served the time, and when you when you get out, then you're not a murderer. I mean, you're not you're not classified the same now. That was. Uh, so how would yeah. that screening process hold up at the border then? If you're saying anyone with a violent history or violent past would no, wouldn't you be able to get in? You, that you cert, yeah, here is here is my conviction, but here is my documentation. I'm sure they have documentation that they served the time and they were uh, then uh, released from prison for having. I mean, isn't there some documentation that a guy gets when he leaves prison that's saying that okay, I've served the time and I've oh I'm sure finished with that. Sure, but everyone now, who shows up, I, everyone who shows up at the border is going to have, uh, you know, you're not going to be it, either. They got away with it, or they've already served their time. So I don't. I mean, it, you're right. It's going to be it's going to be tough. Uh, and and I would say that probably the first people that should be excluded uh, are the um, 
political leaders from all over the world who use initiate violence all the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, that would be my criteria. You know, a guy who has, uh, um, let's say, Idi Amin or or uh, 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 Mobutu or um, um, you know the. Uh, uh, I mean, but uh, probably I wouldn't even. Uh, uh, allow most uh, political leaders from the United States in if they had started a war and conducted uh, violent behavior. Or continued a war that their predecessors started years ago. Exactly. But, you know, also that you get into this whole situation of responsibility. I I hold responsible for this kind of violent behavior the voters who voted them in office and the people who continued to support them with their taxes and... uh, who um, don't resist or, re- or reject any of that kind of behavior. I mean, the, 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 the swath of responsibility um, goes broadly. And so I think when people go to the polls and say, well, I'm just going to vote for this guy because he's the lesser of two evils, I think they have to, um, they, they should incorporate within themselves, well, if I vote for them, then I'm responsible for what that person does. That's why I never vote for uh, a non-libertarian. Fair enough. Any other thoughts on immigration or any, any anything else you want to talk about? We're, we're yeah, pressed up on the clock, that's why. So yeah, if yeah, there's sure, more sure. final thoughts. Oh, I'd like to mention that my book, if you got listeners out there, uh, uh, The Adventures dozens, of Dozens, dozens of listeners out there. <laughs> uh, this week, the, the Afghan edition uh, in Dari is being uh, published. And uh, it's now, that'll be the 54th language of the book. And uh, so if people are interested in learning about... Uh, uh, in a very fun and fanciful way through the adventures of Jonathan Gullible, what a what a free society should be like, then I urge them to look up the book, Adventures of Jonathan Gullible. Thank you very much. Uh, are you with us, MC? I'm here. I've been listening the whole time. All right. Uh, any, any final thoughts from you before we wrap it up? Have a great day. All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, uh, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.